Hi, thank you very much for tuning in. We are starting the book of Acts today. If this is your first time joining us, my name is Dave and I'm a Bible teacher. Vocationally, I'm actually a photographer. We are here in my portrait studio. Um, and last year, uh, actually go back two summers ago, summer of 2019, God put it on my heart that uh, I need to learn his word better. Uh, and that he had plans for me, but he wasn't gonna tell me what they are. And he, I still don't know exactly what they are, uh, but he put it on me that he can't use me to the extent that he wants to until I learn his word better. So that led me down uh, to do two different things. One, I am currently working through a master's in biblical studies, which you will hear elements of that come out in the teachings that, that we're gonna go through together. But two, last year, um, starting in July, I started going through the book of Matthew and doing these weekly studies. And I absolutely love them. It, it forces me to dig in deep uh, to New Testament elements, but through uh, studying Matthew and now going into Acts, we are gonna jump all over the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and there's no better way to learn scripture than to teach it. And so you are joining me along for that ride. As I learn new things, you learn new things, and now today we are starting a new journey going through the Acts of the Apostles. This is the fifth book in the New Testament. We are following after uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Before we dive into Acts, I wanna give just a very quick overview of the Bible in general and the Old Testament and bring uh, the knowledge of everybody to the same point, basically. This might be very common knowledge to you, but for that person who uh, didn't grow up going to Sunday school, which I did not, um, I wanna give just a very, very quick overview. Okay, so you have the Old Testament and the New Testament within the Bible. The Bible itself um, has 66 books in it that were written by 40 different authors. You have um, kings that were involved in writing it. You have uh, fishermen, you have doctors, you have blue collar workers, you have all sorts of different people that go into making this one book. Um, and it spans over 1,500 years in its creation. I fully believe, just so you guys understand my perspective, that this is the inspired, infallible word of God. And everything that I do and everything that I believe as a Christian comes from this foundation. If it's not in here, it is a tradition of man, and I don't think it's necessary to do. But if it is in here, I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna follow it. So you have, when you go back to the very beginning, and looking at the Old Testament, you have the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is just a, a fancy Greek word for five. It's the first five books of the Bible. This is also the Hebrew Bible, the Torah. This is Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. This is the books of law, so to speak. Also, you get into, uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of history from God's creation of the universe, of the earth, of the heavens, uh, as well as mankind. But we also see the foundation and the creation of the chosen people, the Jews. God's chosen people are the Jews and the Hebrew nation. This starts with Abraham. Abraham uh, is the father of Judaism but he is also the father of Islam as well. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac is the Jewish father that we go through, Abraham, Isaac. 
but Islam sees Ishmael, they are descendants of Ishmael. And that's a whole other story to go into and Abraham and his choice to not wait on the blessings of God and the repercussions we are still living with today. So then you have after Abraham, you have Isaac, and you have Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and his 12 sons that he had become the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the foundation of the Hebrew nation and the 12 tribes that are described all throughout the Bible. One of those sons is Joshua. Joshua is sold into slavery in Egypt. He, an amazing study is looking at Joshua. Um, it's Joseph. It's not Joshua. It's Joseph. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in there. Uh, I'm sorry. I totally screwed that up. It's not Joshua. Joshua comes after Moses. Uh, this is Joseph. There's a lot of characters in here. Uh, Joe, Joseph. Uh, Joseph is one of Jacob's sons, and he is sold into slavery. And through a series of events, he ends up becoming second to Pharaoh. Uh, in all of Egypt, and through a famine, his brothers and his father eventually end up coming to Egypt. I'm summarizing this, and I'm skipping all kinds of parts, but I just want to give a quick overview. Um, and you can read all about this in Genesis. All the stories that I'm telling you right now are in Genesis. So Joseph um, ends up becoming a prominent figure, and because of his being blessed and being able to be a blessing on Egypt and all the people in the Middle East at the time, uh, Jacob and his sons and all the 12 tribes and all those people go and live in Egypt. And over a period of 400 years, they become uh, servants and in bondage and enslaved in Egypt. And then you get the story of Moses. Uh, which, phenomenal story, now we're into the book of Exodus. Moses, God uses and chooses to um, lead his people out of captivity. Now, Exodus is a, is a phenomenal story um, about God's love for his people and taking them out of captivity. So you have Moses lead them out of Egypt, you have the parting of the Red Sea, and then you have Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, we get the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law. The 10 commandments are part of this law. It is a conditional covenant. This is um, God saying to his people, Israel, um, the Jews, if you follow these rules, you will be blessed. He designed the law to show Israel uh, what they needed to do to be able to be connected with God and to follow his path for them and for their, their sustenance and to be blessed. It was a very much a, a if this, then that. And the Jews, this is a, a covenant that's a two-way covenant. They were responsible for agreeing to this, which you see in Exodus. They agree to it twice. They agree saying, yes, we will do all these things. This is a conditional covenant, meaning if the Jews follow the rules in the law, they will be blessed. If they don't follow the rules, they will not be blessed and they will feel God's wrath. The whole rest of the, the, the Old Testament, you then after that, you go into the books of history, then you have the books of poetry, followed by the prophets. And time-wise, we actually jump back and forth. So the prophets exist both in the books of history as well as in the prophets. But what ends up happening is, is that um, 
it's the Old Testament is full of these stories of going back and forth and back and forth. As a nation, you'll have a prophet that comes and says that that the Jews need to repent from their, their ways of idolatry or worshiping other gods or doing all these bad things that they're doing. They need to repent, turn to God, and follow the law. And in some instances, they listen, and they do, and they're blessed. In other instances, they don't. But one of the things that we see throughout the Old Testament is a realization that it's impossible to keep the law. Over and over and over again, the Jews keep failing because it has such a high standard of perfection that no one can keep. The law is a schoolmaster that points us to a desire for a better system. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see foreshadows, we see prophecy, we see the, the telling of a new system that is to come, a new covenant that is to come, that is going to be put into place by a Messiah. We see all sorts of prophecies, well over 300 prophecies that, that speak of a coming Messiah that would usher in a new system for the Jew that would allow for them to be reunited with God and to solve this sin issue. You have to remember that Moses and the Ten Commandments and the Law set up the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical tabernacle system was a system of burnt offerings and sacrifices because the Bible does say that without blood there is no remission of sin. So in order for the Jew to be able to be to have their sins atoned for, they had to make sacrifices, which they would do sacrifices of birds and bulls and rams and goats and all sorts of different things. And all of this is in the Old Testament. I'm getting to Acts. Bear with me. But you do see an issue in this system of sacrifices. They never last. You, you do the sacrifice, and it atones for a sin for a period. But then you go and you walk out the door and you sin again. So the Old Testament is full of stories that point to New Testament truths. Okay, so now you get into the New Testament. The New Testament starts out with the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we spent the last nine months going through. We started in July and we just finished at Easter. Now, the Gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's actually one Gospel. It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel, Gospel simply means good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. So when we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we look at four different disciples' um, impression or perspective, is a good word for it, of Jesus' ministry. His earthly ministry of him walking on this planet and all four of these Gospels conclude with the resurrection. That's Easter. We just celebrated that less than two weeks ago. And as I spoke about at the very end of my talk on Matthew, this is the culmination and the pivoting point, the hinge upon which Christianity holds, is the fact that Jesus went up on the cross, was killed, was buried in a tomb, was buried and was in the tomb for three days, and then he rose from the dead. He, across a period of 40 days, was witnessed by over 500 people in a resurrected state, and then he ascended into heaven. That is the culmination of the Gospels. But now, now we go into Acts. This is the Acts of the Apostles. 
You could also call it the Acts of Apostolic Men. It's not the Acts of the Apostles because there are, at this point at the beginning of Acts, there are 11 apostles, right? Um, because Judas is no longer a member um, because of his betrayal and um, he's now dead at this point, uh, committed suicide. And we'll hit that right at the very beginning of Acts. Um, but we're specifically going to look at two disciples. We are going to be looking, spending a lot of time looking at Paul, who we'll start out with, excuse me, um, Peter. We're going to start out looking at Peter, and then we're going to meet Paul. This is a new character that ha is not on the scene yet, and we actually won't be inter even introduced to him until we get into, I think it's Acts 4, is when we first meet him. But I love the story of Paul is a phenomenal one that so many Christians can uh, relate to. It's simply in the mindset that Paul is walking a very different path, meets Jesus, is changed radically, and changes his life drastically. And he can't help but proclaim Jesus after that. And most of the New Testament, a majority of the New Testament, is written by Paul. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal um, disciple, apostle that we're going to study. So let's talk just a little bit about uh, the background and foundation of Acts. We know that it's written by the disciple Luke, and it could also be called Second uh, Luke. It very much could be, because Luke, uh, the gospel, um, was written to Theophilus. In fact, let's turn there to Luke 1. We're finally opening the Bible. Dave's going to stop talking. Well, of course, I'm going to keep talking. But I want you to flip to uh, Luke 1. Luke 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, too, decided to write down an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, so there's a lot of information that we get from this right here. One thing to note, Luke is uh, very much about order and precision and facts. Why? He is a physician. We learn this in, I think it's Colossians. Uh, we learn that he is the beloved physician. Vocationally, he is a doctor. He is a physician. He is very, very meticulous and very, very precise. And we're going to see that when we look at, Luke, at, at Acts, but also when you look at Luke. Okay, another thing to note is that he's writing this to a specific individual. Now, Matthew, which we just finished studying, is written to the Jew. It is written to uh, the, that Jewish person who is very curious about everything, the uproar that's going on um, in Palestine in that time. And so he is speaking to the Jew who grew up uh, in the synagogue, understanding the Old Testament, understanding um, that there was a Messiah coming. And Matthew's argument is, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Luke is the only Gentile of the 12 disciples. He is the only Gentile. He is not a Jew. He is a Gentile. That's an important thing to note. And he's a physician. So those are the things that we know about Luke. Um, now this, who's Theophilus? 
interesting. So we don't know for certain, but we know from historical cultural context a few different things. One, his title that he's given, Most Excellent Theophilus. That 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 is not just saying like, my best friend or my good friend or, or just being um, fluffy in his language. It's a title, Most Excellent Theophilus. And because of this, many scholars do believe that Theophilus was not only a Roman, but he was likely a, a higher level um, Roman in the Roman government, okay? Another element, another theory is that he is actually Luke's owner. What do I mean by that? Well, from a historical cultural context, physicians were often owned as a slave by wealthy individuals. Now, you have to understand, and I've spoken about this before, slavery in uh, biblical times is not like we see it. The the slavery that existed um, in the early uh, stages of U.S. history is nothing like slavery that existed at this time. Many, many people could become slaves for lots of different reasons. It wasn't a racial thing in any way whatsoever. It was, there's mainly two ways that you'd become a slave. One, if as a people group, you were conquered. There's battles that are happening over and over again. If you as a people group were conquered and you surrender rather than fighting to the death, you surrender, you become a slave to the the victor, more or less. Uh, Another way that you become a slave and a common one was if you couldn't pay a debt. If you couldn't pay a debt that you owed, you would go into servitude until you paid that debt. Now, a couple things to note from a historical context. The Bible never condones slavery. It always, whenever you see slavery in the Bible, it is always regulated. And if you follow the system, it would abolish slavery completely. Why do I say that? Well, you, and and this is a tangent, but I'm going to go down this. Um, First of all, you have the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, every single slave is allowed to be freed. They are freed from their servitude. They are freed, but they have a choice. They can become what's called a bond slave, which a bond slave simply means that they were treated so well under the servitude, vocationally almost, so to speak, from their master that they decide, you know what, I want to stay. I have a good life, I have a good existence, I'm gonna stay here and I'm gonna be a voluntary servant. They would be compensated, they would be taken care of, they're fed. So when you look at servitude, it's more like um, a living arrangement where you are working for an employer but you live there and you, you do the work that needs to be done, whether it's working in a field, whatever the situation may be. So when you look at Luke, there there is a very good possibility that Theophilus actually owns him in that, in that context, that Theophilus is a wealthy man and that Luke may be a, a servant to him. It really doesn't matter that much, but I'm trying to paint a picture of the historical cultural context for you. Another element that we get here is, is that he says, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So we know two things from this. One, Luke has been uh, discipling Theophilus. He's been teaching Theophilus. And two, we know that Theophilus is a student. We know that he is learning the gospel. He is learning about Jesus. 
When you look at Luke's take, it, it very well could be that Theophilus is not a believer, but Luke, uh, the gospel is a, a testament to who Christ was. But then when you look at Acts, it's much more of a personal level when he's speaking to Theophilus. And I, this is a theory, I think that Luke was discipling and teaching Theophilus and through the book of Luke, Theophilus becomes a believer and accepts Christ. Then in Acts, he is now speaking to Theophilus as a fellow believer. And you'll see when we, when, when we eventually, we will start reading the book of Acts, I promise you, we're gonna get through Acts 1 today, don't worry. Um, you will see a more informal communication, almost as if he's talking to a brother or a friend, which there is that relationship that we have with fellow Christians. You are now a brother in Christ. Okay, so we know who Luke is. We know that he's the author of Acts. We know who Theophilus is. So finally, uh, let's actually flip over to the book of Acts. And we are going to see in the book of Acts, we are gonna see the foundation of the church. We are gonna see the disciples radically changed. And this is one of the most compelling arguments for the truth of Jesus' resurrection and the truth of who he was. You are going to see these disciples who, especially Peter, Peter who is a fumbling fisherman, a blue-collar guy who, who is timid and shy, but also he's, he's very much the type of guy who jumps into things. You are gonna see him, a guy who, when he was challenged, you're one of the Christ followers. No, I don't know him. I don't know him at all. When Jesus was arrested, unfortunately, Peter does deny being a Christ follower three times on the day that Jesus is arrested. But he's going to change, and the disciples are going to change. They're going to change, change drastically. You are going to see a night and day difference in a comparison between the disciples of the Gospels and the disciples of Acts. What is the one Thing that happened that changed them. Yes, they were with Jesus, but yes, right at the very end, you got to remember, Peter denies Christ right at the very end. And, and even in the Gospels, all throughout, you don't see a bold confidence. But after the resurrection, after they witness Christ on the cross, they see him up there dead. They bury him, they anoint him, they put him in a tomb, and then three days later, they see him alive. This changes them drastically, and they will all, all except for John, will die horrible, horrible deaths and refuse to deny Christ. That right there, to me, is one of the strongest arguments, is that if they had been making it up, if it had just been a farce, one of them would have cracked, if not the majority of them would cracked. And when you, when you like reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see the horrible ways that these guys die. Peter is crucified, but he's crucified upside down because he refuses to be, he's not worthy in his mind to die the death the same way that his savior did. John, who doesn't actually die, he's the only one of the disciples who, who dies of natural causes and isn't martyred. 
They try. They, they boil him alive in a vat of oil, and he miraculously survives unhurt, unscathed. These guys are tortured, absolutely tortured, and we are going to see that. We're going to see them in prison. We're going to see Paul in prison, beaten. We are going to see horrible things happen to these guys. And the thing that's awesome, we're going to see it the first time that they're tortured and flogged, they come out elated. They are so excited. Why? Because it's a fulfillment of scripture and they are full of the Holy Spirit and they can't help but proclaim Christ. Okay, now let's actually get into it. It's a long enough intro. I hope you guys uh, uh, have a good enough uh, foundation there. Okay, so Acts chapter one. In my former book, Theophilus, that's Luke, that's the book of Luke. In my former book, Theophilus, Notice there's no title, Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Remember, the Bible says that over a 40-day period, he, Jesus was witnessed by over 500 different people. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. We're going to come back to that. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So that's a reference, uh, Luke 24, 49, and John 14, 16, for you note takers. Luke 24, 49, and John 14, 16. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, side explanation to that. In the Old Testament, you see all these prophecies of the coming Messiah. The thing is, you see prophecies that are both his first coming and his second coming. One of the reasons why so many Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah was because the, the Messiah is foretold to bring wrath and to, to bring judgment and to come down and destroy and wreak havoc and reestablish an everlasting kingdom. Problem is, that is the second coming. That's the second coming of Christ, which you can actually, uh, Revelation, I want to say it's 19, you see him coming in the clouds um, in mighty strength. Jesus' second coming, he comes as a lion. His first coming, though, he comes as a lamb with total compassion. He comes as the Passover lamb. We've talked about the Passover before, uh, and I'm not even going to go into that. But in his first coming, he is very meek, and he is approachable, and he has compassion and love. And he, his goal in his first coming was to, to present the gospel and to tell of the New Testament and the new covenant that we made in his blood. This is why to this day we celebrate communion. The Last Supper, Jesus explained this. This is the new covenant, a new covenant in my blood. 
So when we break the bread and eat of the bread, it's the representation of the breaking of his body. And then when we drink the cup of communion, it's a representation of the blood that he shed for us. And Jesus specifically said, this is the new covenant. Okay, so the Jews expected the Messiah to overthrow Rome and to establish going back to the strength of, of Solomon and the reign of David and of Israel being powerful again and ruling and reigning in all of uh, Palestine and, and the Middle East overall. That's what they were looking for. And Jesus was very meek. And, and when he died on the cross, many of them were saying, oh, well, I guess he wasn't the Messiah because he didn't fulfill all of these prophecies. When he comes back the second time, he will. So that is what they're talking about when they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're asking if this is your second coming. Is that coming next? Jesus responds, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. For you note takers, underline this passage. You will be my, let's see, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse eight is the quintessential verse that describes the entire book of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's the fundamental scripture verse of the entire book. That's what we are going to see happen is it's gonna start as the Holy Spirit is gonna come on the church. We're gonna look at that next week. That's Pentecost. We're gonna see some crazy things. We're gonna see him speaking in tongues. We're gonna see some, some, some crazy stuff and I'm gonna define that. We're gonna talk about that in Acts chapter two next week. And then we're going to see the gospel proclaimed first to the Jew and then to the Gentile in Jerusalem and then it's gonna spread. And it's gonna spread like wildfire until the end of Acts, we're gonna see it go all the way to Rome and the Roman Empire in general. Continue on, verse nine. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, uh, put your finger here and let's actually flip over to Revelation. I wanna actually show you his second coming. Revelation 19.11. Revelation 19.11. Now remember, um, I spoke about this when we studied Matthew 24. The next thing on the prophetic timeline from an eschatological point of view. Eschatology is the study of end times. One of the next things, the very next thing that could happen is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is, is a gathering of all of God's people, all of those who are part of the church, believers, anybody who professes Christ as their savior will be caught up. This is not Christ's second coming. Jesus does not actually set his feet down. This is where we are taken up. And this is in 2 Thessalonians, I think 14, is where you can see 
this verse, and we talked about it. If you want to learn about it, go back and uh, do this study on Matthew 24, in which we talk about that. This is, uh, the second coming is after that. You have the rapture of the church, then you have the tribulation, which is a seven-year time frame. In the middle of that, you have the abomination of desolation, in which the Antichrist, um, you see his true character come into being. And then at the very end of that, you have this. So uh, Revelation 19, 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a picture of of Jesus' second coming on a gigantic white horse coming out of the clouds. We just saw in Acts, the angels say, in the same way that he just left, he's gonna come back. But when he comes back, he's coming back in his glory and he's coming back with a host with him. And this is the last battle. And I also love the fact that going down his thigh, he has a gigantic tattoo that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The resurrected Christ, the second coming, he is a lion and he's a tatted lion with tattoos. And I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing that one day. Okay, um, Acts 1, 12, picking it up on verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. Just a side note, little side note, a Sabbath day walk um, is the distance you were allowed to walk from your home on the Sabbath. It's a very short distance. I mean, the Mount of Olives is literally right outside of Jerusalem. Um, it's a very, very short distance that they travel. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. This is not Judas Iscariot. This is Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbered about 120. Remember that. The followers right now, specifically just in Jerusalem, those that are part of the way. The way is the term that is used if for the very early church. They're not called Christians yet. It's simply called the way, is the name of the church. They're followers of Christ, and they're not actually uh, deemed Christians just yet. So there are in Jerusalem, they're around 120, but we also know that from his Galilean ministry, um, that in the surrounding areas of Jerusalem, there are Christians all over the place. Okay, so in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, 
in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received from his wickedness, Judas bought a field. Now to note there, Judas didn't actually buy the field. As you recall, um, Judas uh, tried to return the money to the Pharisees that he was paid. He was paid, uh, I believe it's 30 pieces of silver that he was paid to betray Jesus. After he did this, he regretted his decision. He never repented of it. He just regretted it. And he tried to return the blood money. And the Pharisees used that money to buy the potter's field. So it says here that Judas bought a field. He didn't specifically go and purchase it, but the money that he received was used to buy this field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. So we know that Judas hung himself out of disgrace for what he had done. And we also know that in the process of him hanging himself, whether the branch broke and in the process of him hitting the ground, or when they went to take him down because he had already started to decay, either way, his body cavity bursts open, his intestines fall out when he hits the ground. It's graphic, but that's what they're talking about. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called this that field in their language Akeldama, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. That's Psalm 69.25 for you note takers. Psalm 69.25 that he's referencing. And may another take his place of leadership. That's Psalm 109.8. And these are both referencing King David, but they are also fulfilled here. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. So the idea here is that Peter is saying, hey, we have a vacancy. Uh, Jesus said that the 12 will be in heaven and will uh, judge over the 12 tribes of Israel. That is foretold. Jesus says that, that when they die, they are going to be in heaven and that they're going to have a role, a leadership role in heaven. But there's 12 seats there. So the question is, Judas clearly is no longer worthy to hold that position when he's in heaven. So who is going to replace Judas? So they're looking for somebody, and what Peter says is he says, okay, well, this must be somebody who has been with us from the time in which uh, John's baptism until Jesus was, uh, goes up and leaves them. We need someone who has been with us from that time, because as you recall, it's not just the 12. There was a massive gathering that followed in addition to the 12. Picking up on verse 23. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, uh, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. 
question. There is uh, two schools of thought here. And this isn't a, uh, uh, a huge debate. It is an internal debate. But the question is, when we get to heaven, will Matthias be the 12th apostle or will Paul be the 12th apostle? As you recall, Jesus' command that he gives to them is to wait. Do not leave Jerusalem. This is verse 4, Acts 1-4. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised. So the question is, did Peter jump the gun to fill the spot? There's two perspectives. One perspective is that he didn't jump the gun and that uh, Matthias is the 12th apostle. And the, their argument for this is, is that, first of all, they start out in prayer. And second of all, it's specifically mentioned here in Acts, which shows that Luke believes that Matthias was who he was supposed to be a member of the 12. And so that would justify that Matthias is the 12th apostle. The other argument is Christ chooses Paul. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that when um, on the road to Damascus, um, the disciple who be, will be called Paul, but we're going to see him under another name before that, meets Jesus in a very, very personal way. And Jesus very clearly calls him to be a disciple. Now, the other question is this casting lots. So what they did is uh, they would say, hey, Lord, it's one of these two things. These are the choices. Uh, please tell us which one it is. And then they would uh, basically roll these dice. And it's either going to be one or two. Those are the only options. It's going to be one or two. And see, to me and to us today, we would look at that and be like, is that really waiting on the Lord? Is that really a way of uh, asking God's uh, guidance and wisdom in a decision? Or are you forcing God uh, into a position where he isn't making a choice at all? Because what they're saying is, is that, Lord, obviously we have made the wise decision that it is either A or B, and we are going to roll these dice, and you are going to decide right now. Decide. You are going to decide which way the dice land, and then from that, we will know it's either A or B. Well, what if God didn't want A or B? You have put him in a position where he's having to choose A or B, and the dice will fall, and it will decide one way or the other. But what if it's not A or B? You've pigeonholed God, so to speak, and, and it's like you're forcing his hand, which I don't think that's a, a good way to make a decision. Um, should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Should I do this? Lord, I'm going to roll a six-sided die, and if it's one, two, or three, I'm going to marry them, and if it's four, five, or six, I'm not. And you roll the die. How is that to say whether or not you're actually getting uh, God's discernment in that? I would argue that a far better thing to do is to pray, to pray. And if it's a big decision, the Bible actually says that you are to fast and pray. And I've talked about fasting before, but there's a place for that. There's wisdom in that in, in restraining yourself from food, still drinking water over a period of time, up to three days even, as you are praying for God's wisdom and discernment. And if you surrender a heavy decision to God, 
The Bible says that he'll give you wisdom and guidance and he'll guide you. We do see evidence though in the Old Testament of this type of system. You see, um, I think it's Gideon. He's struggling with making a decision and you have Gideon in the fleece. And what he does is he says, Lord, if you want me to make this decision, I'm gonna lay this fleece out, which is basically just a, a, a lambskin. And uh, um, if in the morning there is dew all around the fleece, but there's no dew under the fleece, I'll know that that is your, your, your discernment, that, that I should continue with this. So he wakes up and it's exactly that. And he says, well, okay, just to make sure that that is what you say it is, uh, let's do it again. And now tomorrow, the opposite is gonna be true. There's gonna be no dew on the ground around it, but when I lift up the fleece underneath it will be dew. The thing is, when you read that story, God clearly had guided Gideon down the path well before the, the decision of uh, the fleece or not. God had told him already that that's what he was supposed to do. So I don't know. The, the Old Testament does show that casting lots is a traditional way of making a decision. I, my school of thought, my opinion, and this, this, I mean, you can go either way on this, is that Peter jumped the gun. That when we get to heaven, I think Paul is going to be the, the disciple who is going to be there and the reason you are going to see when we continue in the books of Acts. I am so excited for what you guys are going to see as we continue in the book of Acts. Next week, we are gonna look at the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, which is kind of funky. We're gonna see, we're gonna talk about the Holy Spirit and I'm gonna go into that and describe what happens at Pentecost. So why don't you guys bow your heads with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for um, the testament of these disciples and of the book of Acts so that we can see the formation of your church. We love you, Lord, and I'm, I, I just pray that every person that's listening to this will be blessed and will grow in their understanding with you and that they will continue to study your word. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us in this study. Um, hang in there. Have a phenomenal week. And next Wednesday night, you will uh, our, our next study will go up. Thanks, guys. Take care.